let's, uh, let's pray together. Lord, we have come to this place to submit ourselves to you. We thank you for the fellowship that we share. As minimal in numbers as we are, we're thankful that we have this opportunity. Thank you, Father, for your word, which sustains us even when we're apart. Thank you for the Holy Spirit, which breathes life into us, especially when we're apart. Thank you for your salvation that we can rejoice in and share with others. Thank you for this time that we are able to worship together and open this word of truth. Speak to us, Lord. Speak to us clearly. And may we become more conformed to your son's image. By your mighty hand at work within us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you know how long it takes to get ants out of sugar? I remember once reading some interesting words from someone who captured the following insight that their sugar bowl was Tupperware and usually the ants didn't get into it, but someone hadn't closed the lid tightly and the sugar was full of ants. So let me ask you the question, if that were you, would you throw the sugar away? Probably most of us would. But suppose you were a missionary on the field and you didn't have opportunity to get sugar. He said, I couldn't do that because our finances didn't allow for such waste. So I sat there and picked the ants out of the sugar one by one. I was searching for the last few ants in the sugar when the verse came to my mind. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me to the everlasting way. Ants in the sugar bowl are easily compared to sins that we commit. We know about them, but perhaps no one else can detect them in our lives. They hide deep within, and it really takes the searching of the Lord, the straining and sifting that he can do so well to reveal those secret sins and pick them out. Well, I want to begin with some serious and sober words. I'm convinced that God has a powerful message for each one of us sitting in this room today. Not that he doesn't have something significant for us with every message, but today, in light of our times, I believe he's calling us, all of us, to be personally and spiritually focused and clean as we approach the communion table. I'm absolutely convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Lord Jesus wants his church, this church, to be purified and prepared for him to come at any moment, and he could. And that every single one of us, in order to do that, needs to come before our Savior and deal with sin in our lives. Every one of us. Because I read in the scriptures that there is none righteous, not even one. So you and I cannot come before our Father in worship or serve him in the power of the Spirit if there is anything in our life that we have left unchecked. So every time, every time I walk into this sanctuary, I realize that I cannot stand before you and preach before an audience of one when I am holding on to something in my life that hurts him so deeply. Now, I don't know what you have in your life. 
that may be creating a barrier for your personal relationship with God, or we as a church body may have allowed to come into our midst. But I know from experience that if we allow ourselves to get close enough to his light, that we will discover things, sins, that you and I have likely suppressed and pushed down and ignored, which have blocked the intimacy that God wants to have with us. Isaiah 59, first two verses says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, neither is his ear so dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Those are sober words. Uh, maybe you're not in that boat. Uh, maybe you feel that all is well. That's okay. But I'll tell you, I've thought that before many, many times. And uh, until God caused me to get a little glimpse of what true brokenness before him really is. You may not be able to relate to this sermon tonight. I pray that you will. I pray that the Holy Spirit will pour out his conviction upon all of us and then pour in his comfort. But I know one thing for sure, that Jesus is calling us, his church, to personal and corporate repentance. As Carolyn read the psalm, psalmist David in Psalm 51, he said, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Create in me a clean heart, O God he says, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And then in verse 14, he says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. My tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare thy praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I give it. A burnt offering doesn't bring you pleasure. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, he will not despise. You hear what God desires of us? The thing that he will never despise is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. As a man who was sorely acquainted with sin, he knew, David knew, as someone put it, that the greatest enemy of our souls is the pathologically selfish pride at the core of our fallen natures. And that this is what we will find feeding the strong, sinful cravings of our appetites. As a man after God's own heart, as the scripture describes, David, the writer of Psalm 51, knew what it was that God desired of him as he came clean about his horrendous sin. Listen again to the words in Psalm 34. Verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Are you nursing a heart that is broken before God today? Is your spirit crushed because of any sin? That may be exactly where God wants you to be so that he can bring you into a deeper, closer relationship with him. Through the lips of the prophet Isaiah, God said this, but th to this one I will look. In other words, I'm turning my face toward this person. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. 
I remember a significant experience that happened to me some years ago as I was having my quiet time with the Lord one morning, and I opened my Bible to continue my daily reading schedule, and I asked God to really, really open my eyes and my heart to his word, and my reading for that day happened to be Daniel chapter 9. And as we will see later on in this message, it's one of the hallmark prayers of confession of sin in the entire Bible. In that chapter, Daniel not only confesses his own sin, but identifies himself over 30 times with the sin of his people as if he was personally responsible for it. That's interesting. As I began to read this chapter, my body literally began to shake and tremble. And I realized that this was not just a simple prayer of an Old Testament prophet upon which I was eavesdropping, but a prayer that I myself had to make. And further, that God was calling his church to make. I immediately thought of Isaiah's words again, and as I looked up the scripture of those words, I realized the context in which those words were given in Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house that you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. And then the words, but to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. I realized that God was pointing clearly to the fact that God does not dwell in houses or buildings or churches made with human hands. He cannot be contained under post and beam construction. But he, incredibly enough, has chosen to live in people. His temple of dwelling, his sanctuary, is in the hearts of those who are rightly related to him through a saving faith relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. He lives in those who believe and have accepted his son, Jesus that's what Romans 8 says. Friends, we are the temple of God. We are the temple of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. It is incomprehensible to me that the only temple that is able to house the Lord is the temple of our own bodies. In two places in the New Testament, that becomes blatantly clear. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17 says this, Only as the Lord has assigned to each one as God called each, in this manner let him walk. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm reading a verse in chapter 7. Back up to chapter 6, verse 17. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality, every other sin that a man commits outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Right there, the temple of the, of the Holy Spirit is referring to the individual person. It's a singular word. Okay, now 
three chapters back, or a couple of chapters back in chapter 3 in verse 16, we read similar words. Do you not know, Paul writes, that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. In those verses, he's talking about the corporate body of the church. In both of those texts, it becomes strikingly obvious that if indeed we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, then the temple must be, not should be, not ought to be, but must be a place set apart and cleansed of sin as the scripture says. And that is not something that we can accomplish. It's something that has already been accomplished through Jesus Christ. The problem is that even though we stand positionally and completely clean before God, we are practically in need of cleansing every day of our lives because let's admit it, folks, we sin all the time. And we ignore, if we ignore those sins and refuse to deal with them, they create a barrier between us and God. And the light of his glory can no longer shine through us. We no longer experience, nor do we exhibit, the intimacy and the fellowship that we should enjoy with God or each other. Little seeds of sin, someone has said, produce large trees which block the sunlight of God's purposes. I believe with all my heart today that God is calling us to get right before him that if we truly want him to pour out his blessing on this church body as a whole or in our lives as individuals or us as a nation, we have to come clean, period. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 says this, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So no one can sit and say, I have no sin. John says that if any one of us is sitting here thinking that we don't have any sin to confess, we're self-deceived, plain and simple. But if we confess our sins, the hope is he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. One man has correctly said that our common human failing is wanting what is right and important, but not committing to the kind of life that will produce right actions and an enjoyable existence. What God wants from us, the kind of commitment he expects from us, the temple, it, it, is to be humble, to be broken, and to be contrite before him. And as I have said so, so, I have so vividly learned the hard way over and over again, it is not a one-time event. It is a daily exercise. And listen, friends, if brokenness and repentance is ever going to happen in the world, it's going to have to take place first in the church. That's what 1 Peter says in chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. God is calling us all to repentance today, now. God's spiritual blessing will not come until God's people are personally broken. The classic text concerning this principle and one of the greatest if-then statements in the Scripture is found in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, and that's really where we're going to look today. That was a long introduction, wasn't it? Trust me, we'll, we'll be okay. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 
and beginning in verse 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and I've chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or if I command the locusts to devour the land or if I send pestilence among my people and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and will heal their land. You've heard that verse so many times. It's one of my pet peeve verses because I know that it was really written to Israel. But although this promise given in answer to Solomon's prayer was primarily directed toward the Old Testament temple and the people of Israel, the principles embodied in this text have relevance to us. Why? Because as Christians, we are people called by God's name. Amen? And we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, which I just showed you. And the blessing and the enjoyment of ministry in the church or fellowship with God and the experience of righteousness and peace and full joy in the Holy Spirit still depends upon the four requirements that God lays out in this verse. It can be summarized this way. Our personal brokenness brings God's spiritual blessing. So we need to adopt the 4-H philosophy of brokenness. All these are H's, okay? <laughs> Humility of mind, honesty in prayer, a hunger for holiness, and a heart of repentance. Those four things are in this verse. First, we must demonstrate humility of mind. If my people humble themselves, it says. The epitome of brokenness before God is humility. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 to 7 says, All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. A.W. Tozer once said this, he said, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. To be broken before God is no picnic. It is a wrenching loosing of those sins that we have allowed to become deeply embedded in our hearts. But it is the only way that we can become truly free. To be broken before God is to allow him to perform his work in us, to tame us, to teach us, to mold us, to purify us. Brokenness means constant and humble obedience even when it hurts. And it hurts us deeply. Jesus is our ultimate example at his birth, his, at his baptism, where he identified himself with the repentance of his people, in Gethsemane, as he submitted himself to the Father's will, and finally at Golgotha, as he hung on the cross, Jesus exhibited humility of mind and heart. And he was God. The writer of Hebrews testifies in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 through 9, 
In his life on earth, Jesus made his prayers and requests with loud cries and tears to God. Who could save him from death? Because he was humble and devoted. God heard him. But even though he was God's son, he learned through his sufferings to be obedient. And when he was made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. Among his last words from the cross were these, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Did you know that Stephen in Acts chapter 5, 8 said the same thing? He said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit when he was being martyred. You see, these are the words of someone who is broken before God. It's that prayer that says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, my will, my motives, my resentfulness, my bitterness, my unforgiveness, my job, my family, my friends, my body, my emotions, my expectations, my rights. Pride which is the antithesis of brokenness, seeks to hold on to all of those things, but brokenness and humility releases them to God. In his excellent book, Broken in the Right Place, author Alan Nelson gave a list of attitude checks for brokenness. Here are some of them. Attitude checks for brokenness. Listen to these. Am I willing to let go of my dreams and ambitions if it's God's will? Am I defensive when accused or criticized or misunderstood? Am I coveting what others have instead of waiting for heaven's rewards? Am I forgiving when offended, with or without an apology? Am I complaining or arguing out of unsurrendered rights? Am I thinking of others first out of love? Am I proudly appearing that I am always right or know all the answers? Am I practicing the spiritual disciplines of prayer and fasting and solitude and simplicity? Am I being silent regarding self-promotion and letting God do my public relations? Am I daily saying, God, whatever it takes, I'm willing to submit to your leadership? Am I expressing the joy in the difficulties which serve to refine me? Refine me? Am I taking risks out of obedience to Christ instead of giving in to fear or pride or denial? See, all of these things that Alan Nelson wrote about many, many years ago are so relevant to today, aren't they? Those are convicting questions, but they're the ones we must honestly face if we are to experience the humility God requires of each one of us to humble ourselves before God is to become childlike in our attitudes and practices. And notice I said childlike, not childish. It's a world of difference between those two concepts. When we are broken and humble before God, we tend to be childlike. When we remain unbroken and unrepentant before God, we expose ourselves by becoming childish. And it's the childish behaviors and attitudes among Christians that raise havoc in the church and in the world. Childish people tend to be myopic, thinking the world revolves around them and their feelings. They are selfish, protective, possessive, cruel, and insensitive attitudes which will destroy relationships and unity. 
Paul very clearly understood the difference between the two when he wrote, when I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. To be childish is to exhibit a lack of concern and love for others, thinking only of oneself. True humility and brokenness before God, on the other hand, is childlike. Exhibiting the positive qualities of childhood. One of some of those characteristics. Well, think about them, really. You could come up with the list yourself. Children are vulnerable. No pretense. Their inside life and their outside life are exactly the same. They're authentic. Children are forgiving, quick to make up. They forget what happened five minutes ago. They don't hold grudges. Children are trusting. They jump right into your arms. Children are loving, uninhibited. They hug easily and they say, I love you. They draw pictures. They write notes. They don't social distance. (laughs) What happens to that when we grow up? Children are teachable. That's a big one. Children have simple values. Ever notice kids are not impressed by brand name shoes, clothing, or toys? They don't care if their parents, their pants are purple or their family cars are Mercedes or a Pinto, <laughs> like I had when I first got married. Children are powerless. They have no control. And they are dependent and weak in and of themselves. It's no surprise that Jesus took a child in his arms when he said to his disciples, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But most of us are a lot of times unwilling to do that. I know I am sometimes. You will never, I will never become broken without humility of mind. But beyond humility of mind, 2 Chronicles 7, 14 says that we must demonstrate honesty in prayer. Verse 14 there says that if my people are called by my name, humble themselves and pray. You know what we need to realize most of all about a prayer life? We need to stop thinking that it is enough for us to kneel at the altar praying for our concerns and worship worshiping God, it is not enough. God doesn't simply want us at the altar. He wants us on the altar. Romans 12.1 very clearly says, so then my brothers and sisters, because of God's great mercy to us, I appeal to you, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to God, dedicated to his service and pleasing to him. This is the true worship that we should offer. How often do we come to God in honesty, asking him to deal with all the sin in our lives, every single one. No revival ever happened until people got honest with God and climbed up on the altar and confessed with sincerity, I am crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. St. Isaac the Syrian wrote, spoke of this aspect of our brokenness when he wrote, quote, the man who knows his sin is greater than the one who raises a dead man by his prayers. He who sighs and grieves within himself for an hour is greater than one who teaches the entire universe. He who follows Christ alone and contrite is greater than the one who enjoys the favor of the crowds in the churches, unquote. And friends, that is exactly what assaults me 
Whenever I read Daniel's prayer in Daniel chapter 9, you might want to turn there for a moment. Daniel chapter 9. You know this chapter probably. Read a few verses to you. Daniel says, I prayed to the Lord in verse 4, my God, and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned. Not they have sinned. Daniel says, we have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. He identified with his nation. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame as it is this day to the men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel who are nearby and those who are far away in all countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassions and forgivenesses, for we have rebelled against him, nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings, which he set before through his servants, the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Skip down a little bit to verse 13. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the calamity in storm, brought it on us, for the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. Verse 15 says, at the end, we have sinned. We have been wicked. So now our God, in verse 17, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, listen and take action for your own sake. O oh my God, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. That's right in line with Solomon in his prayer. Let me ask you a question. As I ask myself, do we ever confess sin like that? Because we can't be broken people without honest confession of sin. So what is it that you're keeping from him? 18th century English critic Samuel Johnson had it right when he said, every man knows that of himself which he dare not tell his dearest friend. I'm telling you the truth. Please hear me on this one. You may be able to hide those secret sins from your closest friend, and I may be able to as well, but we cannot hide them from God. Secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. 
Now, you may have questioned why I am dressed in black tonight. Maybe you didn't even cross your mind. You may be thinking, is he making some kind of statement? Just so you know, I am. I am dressed in black because I am declaring my solidarity with all who mourn. I am a man in mourning right now. Like Daniel, I mourn over the fact of sin. My sins. The sins of my nation. The sins of my church. That I am part of a race, a human race, that is fraught with the depravity of sin. Where a white police officer sworn to protect and serve can kneel on the neck of a black man pleading for air for eight and a half minutes until he dies. Where the reaction to that crime instigates more crime and division and behavior that is destructive instead of constructive. I mourn and confess that I am part of a church which tramples on the unity of what Christ accomplished on the cross and through the Spirit by throwing out hurtful words and sentiments toward their own brothers and sisters over minute details about views and political arguments and whether or not we should gather or we shouldn't gather or how that is. I mourn that in one way or another I may be contributing to that confusion. Even a child can see the folly of separating over issues of gathering. That's craziness. I grieve over the fact that God may be telling us to shut the doors if that's what you're going to be about because that's not what I had in mind when I said I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I mourn over the fact that I am part of a nation whose leaders and writers can't bite their toxic tongue and hold their troublesome tweets when they should opt for bringing peace and hope and compassion and grace and truth to its people rather than irresponsible rhetoric and disgust. I mourn when I see Christians responding in kind. I mourn when I allow myself to become callous to people's pain and to blind and be blind to my own sin when I fail to see my own culpability and forget to confess my own sins and forget to cry out in humility for God's forgiveness found in Jesus Christ alone. I mourn over my own lack of faith and repentance and cooling of my love for those who for whom Christ died and rose again. I wear black because I want to remind myself that I, as well as you, as well as our world, needs to demonstrate true brokenness because that's what gets God's attention. It doesn't happen just by wearing black clothes. True brokenness gets God's attention. And it happens when we demonstrate humility of mind and honesty in prayer and hunger for God. Second Chronicles says that we should humble ourselves and pray and seek his face. James chapter 4 verse 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, mourn and weep. 
Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. But get the context. Verse 6 says that if there's any pride in our hearts, God is opposing our approach to him. He wants brokenness. And that is the classic struggle of all the ages. Everyone, everything in us fights against that call to brokenness. Everything. Let me give you a wise counsel here. Decide to lose that fight, would you? Let's decide to lose that fight. Decide to submit to God. Humble yourself. A friend of mine once said these words. I had totally forgotten about them. And then and I ran across them again this week. He said, I used to think that the most miserable person in the world was a person without Christ. But I have learned that the most miserable person in the world is the one who has Christ and then walks away. Galatians 5, verse 17 says, the old sinful nature loves to do evil, which is just opposite from what the Holy Spirit wants, and the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite from what the sinful nature wants. These two forces are constantly fighting with each other, and your choices are never free from this conflict. The problem is that when we resist God's breaking process, we become our own worst enemy. In his book, The Fifth Discipline, Peter Senge shares a tragic story which illustrates the fight many of us go through in this brokenness process. He says, some years ago, while on an early spring canoe trip to Maine, in Maine, we had come to a small dam and put into shore to portage around an obstacle. And a second group arrived, and a young man who had been drinking decided to take his rubber raft over the dam. And when the raft overturned after going over the dam, he was dumped into the freezing water. Unable to reach him, we watched in horror as he struggled desperately to swim downstream against the backwash at the base of the dam. And his struggle only lasted a few minutes, and he died of hypothermia. Immediately, his limp body was sucked down into the swirling water, and seconds later, it popped up 10 yards downstream, free of the maelstrom at the base of the dam. And ironically, it was his very struggle against the forces at the base of that dam that did him in. He didn't realize that the only way out was counterintuitive. If he hadn't tried to keep his head above water, but instead dived down to where the current flowed downstream, he would have survived what he had tried in vain to achieve in the last moments of his life, the currents accomplished for him within seconds of his death. In order to seek God's face, to draw near to God and to break free of this struggle that the flesh and the spirit have within us, we must stop resisting the pull of God on us to be broken. We need to relax. We need to let him draw us out of the turbulence and into the safety net of his rest. He leads us, the scripture says, beside still waters. Be still and know that I am God, Psalm 46.10 says. I love the way the Good News Bible puts it so accurately. It, It translates it like this. Stop fighting and know that I am God. There's only one way to do that turn away from our own natural tendencies and to turn toward God. And the theological word for that is repentance. 
To remain broken before God, we must not only demonstrate humility of mind, honesty in prayer, and a hunger for God, but finally, we must demonstrate a heart of repentance. Turn, if my people turn from their wicked ways. This is the one thing that most of us want to bypass in this verse. Many of us believe we're pretty good at the other three. Humility of mind, honesty in prayer, you know, and hunger for God. But this turning, this heart of repentance thing is a tough one. Truly repentant heart before God is the watershed of true brokenness. And that's what repentance is. Theologically, it's turning away from our sin and redirecting our walk toward God. It's the cessation of the practice of making excuses for disobedience, putting a halt to defending sinfulness and admit that we are wrong and God is right. True confession halts denial, says Alan Nelson. But sometimes theological definitions leave us dazed. So I'm going to give you a definition of repentance that has always stuck with me for years and years and years in this ministry. You probably already know what I'm going to say. But it came from a street-smart, simple, spiritually simple young woman who came forward one evening, evening during a public invitation at an inner-city church. She said, I'm tired. I'm tired of hurting God. That's repentance. That's the most profound and sincere definition of repentance I know. And so the question is, are you tired of hurting God? Am I tired of hurting God? Because every single sin we commit hurts God. And there aren't any that he brushes off. No matter how small they seem to us, no matter how insignificant they may seem to others, it rips God's heart apart. Because it was those so-called tiny little sins that plastered his son's face with human spit, broke his son's back with human hatred, and spilled his son's blood by human hands. So when we sin, and know for sure that we will, we must run. Run to and not from the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and grace in our time of need. And that's what repentance is. Mark Buchanan writes, repentance is often caricatured as some form of self-flagellation, but in reality, few things are more hopeful. Repentance means you can change. It means you're not stuck. It means what has been does not control what will be, that your past need not derange or deform or hold you ransom for the future. It means that the difference between brokenness and wholeness, dirtiness and cleanness, folly and wisdom is one door, the door of repentance. And sometimes it takes people a long time to walk through that door and receive the gift he offers. Let me just summarize this by sharing something that was published in a Dear Abby column appearing many years ago in the St. Paul Pioneer Press Dispatch. And we'll close. Dear Abby, a young man from a wealthy family was about to graduate from high school. It was a custom that 
in that affluent neighborhood for the parents to give the graduate an automobile, a car. Bill and his father had spent months looking at cars. And the week before graduation, they found the perfect one. Bill was certain that the car would be on his graduation night, would be his. Imagine his disappointment when on the eve of his graduation, Bill's father handed him a gift-wrapped Bible. Bill was so angry that he threw the Bible down and stormed out of the house, and he and his father never saw each other again after that. It was the news of his father's death that brought Bill back home again. And as he sat one night going through his father's possessions that he was to inherit, he came across the Bible that his father had given him. He brushed away the dust and he opened it. And when he opened the Bible, he found a cashier's check dated the day of his graduation in the exact amount of the car that they had chosen together. How many of us are blind to the mercy and grace and forgiveness that God has offered to us, which is hidden between the pages of the Bible? How many of us are broken enough to receive it? God's word says clearly, if we have humility of mind, honesty in prayer, hunger for God, and a heart of genuine repentance, that he will hear us, he will forgive us, and he will heal us. I believe with everything I've got that God wants to do incredible and miraculous things in this church, in this new normal that we're in. And he will not do it if we're not right with him, standing in rightness with him. Any serious student of church history has discovered that every genuine revival was preceded by a time of intense personal brokenness and repentance among the people of God. Renewal will not happen in our life or in in the nation any other way. So I'll close with Hosea 6, 3, and then now it's going to lead us in communion. Oh, that we might know the Lord. Let us press on to know him. Then he will respond to us surely, as surely as the arrival of dawn or the coming of rains in the early spring.